Morning. Morning. So nice to see all of you here today. It's so great to have Boston back. It's just such a great gift to see you and Bentley. <laughs> and also want to welcome my dear friend Karen. Where's Karen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so happy. Uh, and um, thank my teacher for all her teaching. I want to talk today about um, Buddha fields. And um, uh, before I do that, I want to dedicate the merit of this talk to the people who are suffering from war all around the world, uh, in Yemen and in the Sudan and in Gaza and in Israel and the Ukraine and many other places. Um, may we all find lasting security and sustenance. Um, so part of the, I guess the inspiration of this talk is that um, just the sorrow of war, <laughs> you know, that we're all witnessing. <sighs> so it war has been on our minds lately. I, I suppose more, more than it has been in a long time. I don't know that that's true for everybody. Um, when we read about war every day in the newspaper, uh, we feel the precarity of our security. Um, it's important to acknowledge the hell of war and to know how many people have died fighting in war and how many people's are, lives are disrupted by war uh, in horrible ways. Um, uh, yet, it's also important to know that um, fewer people have died in conflicts in recent decades than in most of the 20th century. So it is good to, to keep that awareness. Um, we hear about it, um, that if we take one year before the p pandemic, uh, 2019, less than 1% of the world population died due to interpersonal violence. So that's war and murder, I mean, and all these different things. So um, we want to keep our perspective. <laughs> and that's the other thing. Um, so I've often wondered when <laughs> numbers of casualties from war rise so alarmingly every day, um, what can I do? Um, how can I act meaningfully to make a difference in this onrush of conflict? Uh, the mind always goes to direct political activism. Um, I think of Vivian Silver, who is a Canadian-Israeli peace activist who died on October 7th. She was giving an interview at the very moment of the attack. Um, her sons describe her optimism in her activism, even when all the, the numbers who were attending her mom's uh, mother's wage peace um, uh, actions had dwindled in recent years. Um, she called upon people to remember the resolution of other seemingly impossible conflicts, Northern Ireland and South Africa, to name two. Um, so how can we ever know the extent of her influence? Uh, I also think of the simple logistical actions that people are taking um, to aid each other during uh, the the just the the um, insecurity and and 
want of war, um, people who are keeping their family members safe. I heard of one man in Gaza and his determination to keep his family members safe. It was, um, I'll always remember his, this, you know, his desire to make sure all his sisters, his grown sisters, and that meant all their families too, went wherever he went because <laughs> he was like, I have to have them with me. Uh, even though he didn't know that that would be a safe place, he wanted everybody together. And so he just would cajole and push and you have to come and I'll bring your mother-in-law too. You know, everybody's going to come and I'll get tents for everybody and toilets for everybody. <clears throat> so he, <clears throat> so he was trying, he's trying to um, work on all these logistical things for keeping a family uh, safe and sane and fed and, you know, seems impossible. Um, and to think about what is the influence, you know, the, the influence that goes out into the world of that kind of love and care. Um, and so I also think about our own lives. I think about my own life and say, you know, it's impossible to know what our influence is on other people. As we just walk through the world, we're just with other people. Um, so as these ripples go out from our lives. A few weeks ago, Linda Galleon Roshi gave a talk about Utori, which is this mind of spaciousness. <laughs> um, and she quoted from the poet Ni uh, Naomi Shahib Nye, who said uh, she would go into the classroom and write on the board, you are living in a poem. Hmm. Uh, Nye said that she explained it to her students as those times when you think, when you're in a very quiet place, when you're remembering, when you're savoring an image, when you're following your mind calmly, to, uh, you're allowing your mind calmly to leap from one thought to another. That's a poem. That's what a poem does. If we think about a spacious mind as it encounters conflict, we can make some significant movement in understanding how we can live peace in daily life and make a difference in the lives of people around us. Some of you may have heard of this idea of Buddha fields. Each morning we chant the rope chant, and we chanted it yesterday for the ordination. It goes, great robe of liberation, field far beyond form and emptiness, wearing the Tathagata's teaching, saving all beings. So we say that every day. The Tathagata, by the way, is a, is a name for the Buddha. Um, if we've sewn one, we place a rakasu or an okasa on top of our head as we chant it. And if we haven't sewn one, we put our palms together and chant with everyone else. Um, this chant confirms the grounding of our lives together um, to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. We might picture an agricultural field when we think of the Buddha field or a wildflower field. Um, we might think of it as a field of action or it, it's something like a broad terrain on which we live out our vow. I found a very helpful summary of this um, 
history of the Buddha field, how we've seen it across time, was in Paul Williams's book called Mahayana Buddhism. And I want to honor him for his very worthy work. He begins by explaining that from the perspective of Buddhist cosmology, space, like time, is infinite. Infinite space is full of infinite universes, world systems, stretching to the ten directions. And within these infinite reaches, some universes are known as Buddha fields or Buddha lands. Generally, this term denotes an area, a cosmos, where a Buddha exerts her spiritual influence. So if we think about, if we're talking about all the influence that we might have with our lives and the influence that all these people that we hear about who are doing heroic things have with their lives, if we think about the influence of the knowledge and compassion of Shakyamuni Buddha's teachings, then we wouldn't really be able to encompass it. It seems to be spreading even further and more quickly than um, in recent years than, than we can even keep track of. Not just the Buddhist texts that are available, but all the different things uh, that we see in the culture. Um, so it's really awe-inspiring to think about the Buddha's influence on us. Uh, and for sincere practitioners in all different walks of life, from incarcerated pe- uh, people to NASA engineers to English teachers, uh, bookkeepers, <laughs> yoga teachers. <laughs> um, in each of our sessions, whether it's a five-day uh, five or one-day, I feel this immediate sense of being settled when I participate in the simple practice of sitting in still quietness together with my, my friends in the Zendo. We're breathing in and out together. We're letting thoughts flow like water. The process of sitting in still silence is a practice of spaciousness. It opens the heart. Galen Roshi during Rohatsu Sashin in December talked about the centrality of love in this practice. As we sit in the zendo facing the wall, we hear someone enter. Uh, we know them so intimately from this still silence that we can tell who it is without using our eyes. She used the kitchen practice as an illustration. In the often swift-moving practice of uh, preparing three meals a day for retreatants, the Tenzo, who's the cook, and the kitchen Sangha move as one body. They move out of the way as someone needs to get to a drawer, and they don't have to say, excuse me, or that's okay, uh, as we do in ordinary life, because this spacious kind of love reigns there. As she said, it's all about love. And to think that this activity is all happening more than 2,500 years after the Buddha's lifetime, there's that sense of that uh, influence of his life and practice. So the principal function of a Buddha is to teach sentient beings in her Buddha field. Um, during, this, during his career as a bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be purified his Buddha field. So the Buddha field is the result of all that great compassion, 
eons after eons, many lifetimes after lifetimes, building up that great compassion over and over and over, more and more and more. So that is an area that can ripen sentient beings. Uh, Beings themselves also contribute because it's a place that they've been reborn through their deeds as beings open to the working of the Dharma. Um, So that's a, it's a miracle. It's a really, it's an amazing thing to think about um, all the things you could be doing this morning. (laughs) And here you are, (laughs) something brought you here. And um, that something is, is this influence that's still working. All that, all those different people who have, have, have um, helped to make this Buddha field right for our practice um, are, we're the benefit of all, we're the beneficiaries of it and we're the participants in it as it's happening. Um, so the Buddha field is precisely a place where con- conditions are advantageous for spiritual progress. So in the history of this concept of the Buddha field, there's this interesting and beautiful problem, and it's called the Saha world. So the, the Buddha's Buddha field, Shakyamuni Buddha's Buddha field, is called the Saha world. And um, this is a, a world that, of the current, the current Buddha, um, and it's, it's said to be thoroughly impure. And that's the the interesting problem that I want to talk to you about. So some Mahayana texts speak of three types of Buddha fields, pure, impure, and mixed. For example, in an impure Buddha field, one list has it that there are non-Buddhists, there are seriously suffering beings, there's differences in lineage, there's immoral beings, and there's lower realms such as hell. There's inferior conduct, all these different things. So that's an impure Buddha field. And then a pure Buddha field is described <clears throat> something like Amitaya's uh, Sakyavati, uh, the pure land, will be something like what's described in the Lotus Sutra. <clears throat> it says that it's well adorned, having no filth or evil, no tiles or pebbles, no thorns or thistles no excrement or other impurities. Its soil shall be flat and even, having no high or low, no hills or crevices. It should be everywhere clean and pure, with with jewel flowers scattered about. So obviously such a pure land would be an excellent place for developing the path to enlightenment. While our Saha world, particularly since the death of the master, doesn't seem like it would be so good. This is a very early view of the Saha Buddha field. And by early, I mean anywhere from the first century before to the first or second centuries of the common era. So there was a new development then, many years later of the idea of the Buddha field, and that can be found in the Vimalakirti Sutra, where Shariputra raised the question, this problem of the Saha world being so impure. And he did so after he heard the the Buddha speaking about the Buddha field. So I'll first present some of what the Buddha said of his Buddha field. 
And then I'll give you Shari Putra's <clears throat> useful question. Excuse me. So the Buddha said, Noble sons and daughters, a Buddha field of bodhisattvas is a field of living beings. Why so? A bodhisattva embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that he causes the development of living beings. She embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that living beings become disciplined. He embraces a Buddha field to the same extent through entrance into a Buddha field, living beings are introduced to the Buddha knowledge. She embraces a Buddha field to the same extent that through entrance into the Buddha field, living beings increase their holy spiritual faculties. Why so? A Buddha field of bodhisattvas springs from the aims of living beings. So here then, the Buddha, the Buddha field is already described as a field that is not just the realm of an active influence of a Buddha, but the realm of living beings who participate actively in it, who also exert this influence. And um, the Lotus Sutra uses the language of space to describe the Buddha field. I always feel like space is such a big category in um, Buddhist sutras. I've always wondered what to do about that, how to, how to think of it. So here's a, here's a puzzling description of how, what we do with space. Should one wish to build, an, build in empty space, one might go ahead, <laughs> in spite of the fact that it's not possible. <laughs> to build or adorn anything in empty space. In just the same way, should a bodhisattva who knows full well that all things are like empty space wish to build a Buddha field in order to develop living beings, she might go ahead in spite of the fact that it is not possible to build or adorn a Buddha field in empty space. So here then is the emptiness teaching that we are, that's so central to our school and our understanding and practice. And this word emptiness refers to the reality that nothing is permanent, that everything comes and goes in a flash, and hence everything and everyone is what's called empty of self-nature, that is, of any abiding essential substance. After that intriguing vision of the impossible yet desirable idea of building anything in space, the Buddha says, yet a bodhisattva's Buddha field is a field of positive thought. When she attains enlightenment, living beings, free from hypocrisy and deceit, will be born in her Buddha field. It is a field of high resolve. It is a field of virtuous application. It is the magnificence of the conception of the spirit of enlightenment. It is a field of generosity. It is a field of tolerance. It is a field of meditation. It is a field of wisdom. It consists of love, compassion, joy, and impartiality. And he adds many other areas that it includes, including essentially all the core teachings of Buddhism. He also adds the ethical precepts, saying that the Buddha field consists of his personal observance of the basic precepts and his restraint in blaming others for their transgressions. When he attains enlightenment, even the word crime 
will never be mentioned in his Buddha field. And many of the Mahayana Sutras, Shariputra serves as the one who comes out with what others are too judicious or diplomatic to say. (laughs) But he always reminds me of my younger sister, Sherry, because she was the one who did that. No diplomacy. You would alert things out. She would get us into trouble all the time by saying things that were supposed to be kept silent. (laughs) It's a little childhood family. Um, So there's Shariputra. But in this sutra, um, the Buddha said, is said to have plant, planted such a thought in Shariputra's mind so he could address it, this concern, more openly for everyone. So here's how that goes. Thereupon, magically influenced by the Buddha, the venerable Shariputra had this thought. If the Buddha field is pure only to the extent that the mind of the Bodhisattva is pure, then when Shakyamuni Buddha was engaged in the career of a Bodhisattva, his mind must have been impure. Otherwise, how could this Buddha field appear so impure? The Buddha, knowing telepathically the thought of the venerable (laughs) Shariputra, said to him, What do you think, (laughs) Shariputra? (laughs) Is it because the sun and moon are impure that those blind from birth do not see them? It's just just an amazing question. I just think that it just opens everything up right there. So I'll just say it again. He says, what do you think, Shariputra? Is it because the sun and moon are impure that those blind from birth do not see them? And Shariputra replied, no, Lord, it is not so. The fault lies with those blind from birth and not with the sun and moon. The Buddha declared, in the same way, Shariputra, the fact that some living beings do not hold, behold the splendid display of virtues of the Buddha field of the Tathagata is due to their own ignorance. Shariputra, the Buddha field of the Tathagata is pure, but you do not see it. And I think about that anytime I'm being fussy and complaining. (laughs) It's in my mind. My mind is in the way. It's not the world. So Shariputra said, As for me, I see this great earth with its highs and lows, its thorns, its precipices, its peaks, its abysses, as if it were entirely filled with ordure. <laughs> ordure is, is um, feces. <laughs> trying to think of a non-cursed word. <laughs> <laughs> So, Bra- uh, Brahman Sikin replied, The fact that you see such a Buddha field as this, as if it were so impure, Reverend Shariputra, is a sure sign that there are highs and lows in your mind, and that your positive thought in regard to the Buddha knowledge is not pure either. Reverend Shariputra, those whose minds are impartial toward all living beings, and whose positive thoughts toward Buddha knowledge are pure, See this Buddha field as perfectly pure. So here we see the emptiness teaching as it understands Buddha fields. We started with the idea of of pure and impure um, Buddha fields. So we might have imagined a place somewhere where we would go or a land in which we we would have a chance to have been born. 
In that idea, the Saha Buddha field is quite unfortunate, quite lowly, something we would want to get out of right away. Now, with this new lens of the emptiness teaching, we can see that wherever we are, what, whether we think it's a lovely place or a hell realm, the mind is producing that impression, not the place itself. In this scenario of the, of the Vimalakirti Sutra, Shariputra has just received this surprising teaching that has the capacity to turn his conception of the Saha world inside out, that the Buddha has more than a discursive way of teaching. In India, there was quite an intricate practice of categorizing the relative purity and impurity of people and things. And I would imagine that a big toe would be considered impure, just a guess. <laughs> but we see in the story that the Buddha used what would be considered impure to show the emptiness of the binary altogether. Thereupon, the Buddha touched the ground of this billion-world galactic universe with his big toe, and suddenly it was transformed into a huge mass of precious jewels, a magnificent array of many hundreds of thousands of clusters of precious gems, until it resembled the universe of the Tathagata Ratnayuva, also called Anantagunatara. Everyone in the entire assembly was filled with wonder, each perceiving himself seated on a throne of jeweled lotuses. You can just look down and see you're seated on a throne <laughs> of jeweled lotuses. <laughs> then the Buddha said to the venerable Shariputra, Shariputra, do you see this splendor of the virtues of the Buddha field? And Shariputra replied, I see it. Here before me is a display of splendor such as I never before held, uh, beheld, heard ever beheld. Put another way, we are already in the pure land, if we only knew it. Whatever the realm, if it's inhabited by people with enlightened pure minds, then it is a pure land. The pure land is truly, therefore, not a heavenly abode that is rather awakening mind itself. So I, I have to, I think Gail mentioned that I teach English, and one of my favorite books is Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. And I was just, I'm teaching it right now, and there was an incident in, in the beginning of the novel where Jane has been silently forbearing very unjust treatment for her first 10 years of her life. And she finally bursts out with her truth. Uh, but when she does so, it just has a little bit too much force. It's not going to be functional to, to be that outspoken <laughs> in her world. Um, so afterwards, she stands alone, reflecting. And she feels exultant for a time because she really has told off Mrs. Reed in a major and also criticized her children which one should never do. <laughs> Not children or dogs. <laughs> never, never go there. <laughs> um, so she, um, she stands there, she feels exultant, and then um, she starts to feel the aftertaste of remorse. 
Um, She says, a half hour silence and reflection had shown me the madness of my conduct and the dreariness of my hated and hating position. It really struck me that that dreariness of a, a hating position. Just you, I think we probably all go through these things. We're listening to the radio. There's the po- politics on the news, and we're like, "Oh, terrible!" You know, that's a hating position. It's not helpful for our heart. It's not helpful for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a a moment of silent reflection can help us see that. Can we can feel the reverberations and it feels like poison wine. You know, it feels like that bitter aftertaste that we get when that happens. So this is a still moment of realization um, that we probably have many, many times, depending on our temperament. Um, while some of us can join directly direct action groups to end war. All of us certainly can make peace in our hearts, our minds, and our actions. When we think of this grand effort, um, we could think of it in three major areas, body, speech, and mind. So I'll use Thich Nhat Hanh's words for these. When you produce a thought of non-discrimination, understanding, and compassion, you begin to heal yourself and the world. When you're able to say something or write a note with non-discrimination, compassion, and understanding, and forgiveness, you heal yourself and you heal the other persons. In bodily action, right action is characterized by non-discrimination, compassion, and understanding. The pure land is truly, therefore, not a heavenly abode. It is awakening mind itself. We can take it as an invitation to embark on a journey to make it so. We can do that with a foundation of zazen that gives us the spaciousness to investigate our ways of acting and reacting, thinking and feeling, to see if we can make peace wherever we are. May it be so for us and for all sentient beings.